and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod. This week, we're reading fairy tale retellings. So our picture book is Patan's Pumpkin, an Indian flood story by Chitra Sundar and illustrated by Franela Sack. And our chapter book is Terry Pratchett's The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents. I just wanted to have a little chat at the top of the show about what constitutes a fairy tale and what the difference between a fairy tale and a folk tale is. Because I was thinking about it after we did the Jumbies for Halloween, that we talked mm. about um, that it's influenced by Caribbean folk tales and European fairy tales. And I was just thinking... Is the difference between folk tales and fairy tales that fairy tales are like about and by white Europeans? And what do you think the difference is? My gut leaning is yeah. similar that like the fairy tales is as long as it's got like princesses and castles and medieval European stuff in it. Yeah, yeah, basically that was the that was the yeah. gut feeling I had. <laughs> Neil Gaiman says, Folk tales are an oral tradition with no accredited author. Characters are generally animals. Folk tales are rooted more in human scenarios instead of magic, whereas fairy tales are written folk tales credited to an author. Characters include mythical and otherworldly creatures. Um, fairy tales are rooted in magic with mythical scenarios, and fairy tales were originally written for the aristocracy. I think that's the big difference, is that yeah. fairy tales are... European folk tales, which a writer then wrote down specifically for like an aristocratic family. Just from listening to that, you do get kind of magical characters in each of them, right? There's no. Oh, definitely. The Jumbies are magical. Yeah. And then if it's an oral versus written tradition thing, then anything written down becomes a fairy tale. And... Yeah. Well, that, that's the tack I've decided to take that any book written down will qualify as a fairy tale for the purposes of this show. Right. <laughs> I think it's basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing, yeah. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's a snobbery thing, isn't it? I, mean... I, I think that is entirely it. So, Patan's Pumpkin is described as a folk tale from the Irula tribe in the mm. Sayadri Mountains, and it is retold by Chitrasundar. So... Patan's a farmer. He grows vegetables and grains and he keeps animals like goats and cows and elephants. Yeah. And one day he finds an ailing plant and he takes pity on it, scoops it up, plants it in his garden and starts looking after it. Yeah, it pushes out these lovely yellow flowers and it starts to thrive and then it grows a pumpkin. And at first the pumpkin's small. But soon, it's as fat as a pig and taller than an elephant. <laughs> yeah. And he just keeps letting it grow. Then 
there is great storm and the rain's yeah. lashing down and it won't stop and it's coming down and coming down and coming down and all of the animals and Patan and his wife Canny are very frightened. And Patan says, it's time to harvest the pumpkin. So he climbs up onto a mountain so that he can jump down on top of the pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, which sounds terrifying. He starts burrowing in, hoying bits of like pumpkin flesh out over his shoulder as he goes, and the yeah. animals make this like production line to like carry the pumpkin flesh away as he hollows it out. And everybody piles in, and there's room for everyone. Everybody, yeah. including several elephants, fit inside. Yeah. And Patan also brings saplings of every plant and grains of every cereal so that I yeah. guess he can preserve the ecosystem and bring it entirely mm. with him. They all pile in, they cut the stem, it floats away with them all inside, and it's terrifying. Yeah. And Canny sings them all a song to help them not be so scared. And eventually, the flood stops, the pumpkin alights on some land in the foothills of the Sayadri Mountains. Patan and family climb out and set up a new farm, plant all the saplings, sow all the grain, build a new house and grow more pumpkins from the one seed they kept. And the descendants of Patan and Kani are living in the Sayadri Mountains to this day. And they farm pumpkins. And they remember Patan and Canny with reverence and love, which I think is a nice line to end with. Yes. No, it's it's a it's a lovely story. The il- the illustrations are gorgeous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Frenet Lissac did a really lovely job. Really sort of like, like you... colourful, naive style. Yeah, like it looks it looks like a kid drew it. But a really talented kid. In a really nice way. Yeah, like sort of very flat perspective. Yeah. Um, it's super colourful. It might be a good invitation for children to draw. Yeah, totally, because it feels really accessible. It yeah, it kind of looks like it's been done with paints and maybe felt tips. And I guess the child-like quality of it comes, as you, yeah, as you say, from perspective. So, like, that, I think one of the opening images, you've got, like, the hilltop with the river coming down. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it's drawn the way a kid would draw it, which isn't to say that it's, like, just messy, but it's, like... You've got the hillside undulating and then in one of the undulations, the river comes down just as a sort of blue band into the foreground. (laughs) You know, it's not kind of like really carefully mapped out perspective. It's just like, here's the hills, here's the river, here's an elephant. That's the things that we need. (laughs) And then just like lovely bits, like you were saying with the pumpkin getting bigger, like... It's in the pictures, it's like it's the things around it that get smaller. Yeah, <laughs> which I the really pumpkin liked. looks the same, but suddenly the elephant's really the... small. <laughs> <laughs> and the the picture of him climbing into the pumpkin with his legs sticking oh, it's my out. Favorite. Like... That is exactly the kind of drawing I would have done as a kid. That's it. It's great, and it's got that humor. It's got mm. that humor of kids' drawings of like, here's a pumpkin. Here's a man inside the pumpkin. You can tell he's inside the pumpkin because he has his legs sticking out of it, like <laughs> just two little sticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. So when I read this, the first thing it made me think of, and I think the first thing it made you think of as well, was Noah's Ark, right? Yeah, definitely. It's like Noah's Ark, but with pumpkins, I think, was my yeah. brief summary. We go to Noah's Ark because... It's the one we know. Yeah, it's the one we know, but there are a lot of these. So I looked up, the first one might be Gilgamesh's flood myth around 
2700 BC. There was also right. a massive flood in China, which like apparently went on for two generations. The flood of Gunyu in China in the 3rd century BCE, around the same time. There's Manu mm. and Matsya, so that's in um, Hindu folklore. This is the particular origin story of the Irular people, who are yeah. a small tribe in the Sayadri Mountains. And Chitra Sundar found this story in the research notes of a researcher who'd gone to southwestern India to like research something else. And he was having lunch with the Irula people, and one of the elders told him this story. And he just like jotted it down, among other things that he was working on. And then, you know, carried on with his own research. And then Chitra Sundar found it and was like, oh, this is so cool. This is like, you know, yeah. the flood myth of the Irula people. And so she did loads of research on it, found nothing, which means that Patan's Pumpkin is the first written version, the first written published version of this story. Mm-hmm. So it really was a folk tale till recently then. I'm sort of pleased to find that like, she's written quite a lot about the responsibility of being the first one to put it into writing. So she was researching this story and could find like nothing apart from these research notes in this dude's paper about something completely different. And so she went to a publisher and like sold them the story as this like cool like flood myth with like a big orange pumpkin on the front of the book, you know, and it's going to like yeah. be really visually appealing, really cool. So she she sells the idea, and then she's doing more research and she's like, hang on, did they have pumpkins <laughs> in India at this point in history? It turns out, no, they didn't have pumpkins. <laughs> And so she like has a bit of a panic. She phoned up the researcher and was like, you wrote down this story from like this elder tribesman. Mm. Are you sure it was a pumpkin? And he's like, oh, no, you're right. I've made a translation error. It's a mm. surakai, which is a bottle gourd, which is a big green pumpkin-like thing in the shape yeah. of like a wine bottle. Um, but it doesn't have like the visual recognizability at least to a western audience so the pumpkin does harder to sell to a publisher patan's bottle gourd doesn't have quite the same <laughs> ring to it does no it? exactly and you know like chitra sundar publishes yeah. in the uk so they decided to like keep it being a pumpkin but they put a note at the end of the book saying it was actually a bottle gourd We've taken some creative that's license good. here. That's good. Yeah, I think it does matter. Creative license is fine, and citing your sources is also important. Uh, so what age of kid would you say Patan's Pumpkin is for, Matt? Um, really little ones, this, mm. isn't it? Yeah. I think from, like, from the age of, like, two or something, because yeah. it's... yeah simple story and just colour like as we were saying before just like colourful accessible pictures yeah really lovely one yeah I can imagine it being much loved throughout childhood as well I think it would be one of the ones that would stick around as a classic you know yeah and so now we're going to move on to a folk tale which has been retold many 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 times and so Terry Pratchett has got got a lot of um, retellings to draw on He's got a lot to parody, and parody is what he does oh so well. The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents by Terry Pratchett. It's one that we both loved as young people, isn't it? This is a book that I've read for the first time when I was about 17 in the sixth form common room, and someone at my school said, 
oh, are you reading that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, have you read it? And he said, yeah, when I was like 10. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'd, I'd not clocked this particularly as a kid's book, you know. Mm. And this is it. It's a really good book. And I'd not been reading it going, guiltily going, oh, I'm reading a book for kids. This book came into my life when I was about 12 or 13, I think. And again, I didn't think of it as being for anyone any younger than me, but I've been looking at like reviews from parents and children, and people have been reading this to kids as young as seven, and it's fine. Yeah. It's just a really good book, which is accessible to children. Listeners to the podcast probably know this by now. I grew up in France with a British family, and so there was not often new books in English in our house. We couldn't get them, we couldn't buy them. So what my mum used to do, she used to take an annual trip to Plymouth to get us Christmas presents and, like, Christmas food and stuff. Yeah. So my mum would drive up to the ferry with her friend on a day in November and they'd have a day trip to Plymouth and they would stock up on the food. They would stock up on the M&S chocolate money and chocolate oranges and cheddar cheese and also cheddar biscuits Mm. and Marmite. (laughs) these were the coveted british foods yeah yeah, yeah. and then mum would she would bring an extra suitcase just for this she (laughs) would go around all the charity shops in plymouth and just randomly pick up kids books that had good titles or good covers yeah and that's how we got (laughs) the amazing morris and his educated rodents Yay! Yay, Christmas giveaway! We're doing a giveaway! We've put together a bundle of presents all connected to the themes and books we've been reading throughout the year and wrapped them all up in a tote bag kindly donated by Armchair Books. Disclaimer, we know the co-owner of Armchair Books, so that's how we got it. Definitely check out Armchair Books if you're ever up in Edinburgh. Gorgeous little bookshop. So basically, each week this series, we're going to be popping in to tell you about one of the presents... This week we're telling you about the Snowman audiobook, which is based on the picture book by Raymond Briggs, written by Howard Blake and narrated by Bernard Cribbins. You mentioned this in the Wordless Picture Book special. It's uh, an audiobook quite clearly written by the guy who's done the music. Yeah, and I think that works really well. So this is a CD with a little booklet on the inside of the jacket, so you can read the story alongside Bernard Cribbins. Yeah, and it's it's got the score to the TV adaptation, which I think everyone knows and loves by Howard Blake. Bernard Cribbins does a great job reading it. Um, it's really nice. So, you know, you could have it on in the background while you wrap your presents or put it on for your kid while you wrap their presents in another room. It'll buy you 27 minutes. So that's one snowman audiobook going in the tote bag with The Wind and the Willows board game. All in the bag there. You've got to enter to win it. And if you need reminding of how to enter, just check out the show notes. And now on with the show. Will you give us a non-spoilery plot summary, Matt? Yeah. So, basically we have the story of the Pied Piper. So, original story of the Pied Piper is... Town has a plague of rats. They call the Piper, who goes in with his magic pipe plays it all of the rats chase him out of town and he drowns them in the river and then one town refuses to pay him so he does the same but with all their children and he leads all the children out through like a crack in the mountainside and they're never seen again yeah 
So this is kind of taking that story as its genesis point, but what we have is a group of rats who have become sentient. And then we have a cat who is also sentient. We have Maurice the cat. He's hanging around with the rats. He started to learn not to eat things that ask him not to. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice is a gamester. He's a scammer. So basically what he's got going is he's got all these rats and he's also stumbled across a stupid looking kid. And he's an orphan, so no one notices him go missing to like take part in this scam. That's important yeah. too. Nobody cares about him. Yeah. So basically, Talking Cat comes up and goes, you want to make some money with that penny whistle of yours? And basically, the scam they have going is they go from town to town. The rats set about making it look like there's a plague. You know, they're going wee in the jam and swim in the cream. They've got a, a trap disposal squad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and basically they're getting the town to call out the piper. And once they do that, the kid appears and says, I can get rid of your rats, plays his pipe. And obviously, because all the rats are sentient and they're in on the game, they're in on the gig, they follow him out of town and they charge like $30 a pop and they just go from town to town doing this. Yeah. So that's the usual scam that they have set up. And the story in this book is one of those that doesn't go at all to plan. Part of the initial problem is right at the beginning of the book, they've done this scam a few times and the rats are becoming uncomfortable with it. Yes, so it's going to be the last one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be the last great hurrah because the rats don't want to scam people anymore. Maurice is basically <laughs> trying to sort of placate them all and say, like, it's fine, like, you know, it's government money. Governments are bad. Governments pay for rat catchers and rat traps. Yeah, they're going into this city called Bad, Bad Blintz, yeah. which gives you a clue that it's in Discworld's version of Germany, you yeah. know, to fit in with, like, Hamlin, which is also in real Germany. They team up with a little girl called Militia Grimm, who is the daughter of the mayor. In terms of the plot, I think that's maybe about as far as we should go, because it's, it's a very plot-driven book. It's a proper page-turner, like, it's... It is Terry Pratchett at his best. It's a story that becomes, in a lot of ways, about like the meaning of sentience and the meaning of religion and the meaning of stories and the stories we tell ourselves. We need to reread the first page, Matt, because this is what the first page says. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the first page of The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents. Chapter One. One day, when he was naughty, Mr Bunsey looked over the hedge into Farmer Fred's field and saw it was full of fresh green lettuces. Mr Bunsey, however, was not full of lettuces. This did not seem fair. <laughs> From Mr Bunsey Has an Adventure. Rats! They fought the dogs and killed the cats and... This is uh, Robert Browning's retelling of the Pied Piper, innit? But there was more to it than that. As the amazing Morris said, it was just a story about people and rats and the difficult part of it was deciding who the people were and who were the rats. But Militia Grimm said it was a story about stories. Mm. Mm. This entirely encapsulates what this book is. It's a really simple story about some people and some rats, mm. and it's also a story about everything, and particularly <laughs> it's a story about the way stories shape us. Yeah. I wanted to quick give some background about the folk tale or fairy tale this is based on? Yeah. 
This story first starts to appear in writing in the Middle Ages in Germany as the Rattenfänger von Hameln, and then it was retold by the Brothers Grimm and by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and notably Robert Browning, whose mm. poem is at the beginning of this book. Terry Pratchett also gives a wink to the Brothers Grimm by casting them as the Sisters Grimm in this. Yeah. There are a lot of like little winks like this. Um, yeah. This is Terry Pratchett playing with something that everybody else has already had a go on mm. and still squeezing something original out of it. There was something I loved in that as well, actually, in terms of... Um, so dealing with like anthropomorphism, we have a bit at the end where kind of the leader of the rats and the leader of the humans are talking. Yeah. Um, there's this lovely moment where... They're having a bit of a private chat and the mayor of the town is sort of saying, you know, my whole day is just admin and paper and just trying to make everything right for all these people who live here. And it's knackering. And the rat's kind of saying, like, it's so tiring. Like, all you used to have to do to be leader was just be big and bite other people in the head. And now I need to know when to shout and when not to shout and when to tell people to do things and when to let other people come up with the ideas and and the like the human me is going yeah 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 i know and i just loved that because i was like it's about stories and i guess in that sense about social conventions and like the rules and stories we tell each other as a society mm. that we have to obey by and even animals have that i thought that was just a really lovely moment um yeah. Do you want to talk about the epigraphs? Mr. Bunsey has an adventure. I think we have to talk about Mr. Bunsey has an adventure. <laughs> Do you want to start us off on that, Nina? So every chapter in this book starts with a little excerpt from Mr. Bunsey has an adventure. Mr. Bunsey has an adventure is a scathing parody of Peter Rabbit yeah. by Beatrix Potter. <laughs> Absolutely savage <laughs> it's this cutesy story about cutesy little bunnies that wear blue coats and are friends with humans and they do human things and it is the first book that the educated rats come upon in the pile of rubbish and therefore it is their sacred text yeah, because it's, it's animals with clothes on and and you know they're trying to negotiate and deal with this world post sentience and figure out what these thought things are and yeah. how this should be behaving and they're starting to write things down and mm. yeah and then they find a book where it's like oh these are animals wearing clothes that they carry around with them everywhere <laughs> yeah they're little rats and they're dragging around this like children's book about the arrival of their morals i thought it was a really good bit really near the beginning where they're talking about rats have started to have dreams and they never used to have mm. dreams. And they've started to become scared of the dark and they mm. never used to be scared of the dark. Um, one of their number has run into a trap and got squashed. And all the other rats are sort of looking at his squashed body and are really uncomfortable. And some of them are like, well, we eat him, right? It's food now. As long as you don't eat the green wobbly bit. <laughs> and and But the other one, some of them are like, but where is he, the part of him that was him, hmm. inside? And they're like, 
what? You mean the green wobbly bit? No, the bit behind the eyes. Oh, you mean the grey pinky bit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, the bit of him that, like, was him and had dreams. Mm. And that, like, they're having this real, like, philosophical moment of, like, I guess the idea of a soul, the mind-body duality, and, yeah. like, discomfort with the idea of eating someone. And poor Maurice has this even worse. Like, he's a cat. He eats rodents. Yeah, yeah. It's his thing. But now he has to ask everyone when he catches them. And he's really <laughs> insistent on, like, yeah. making... Sh- like, he's, like, whenever he, he's up in the hayloft and he eats a mouse, he's like, I asked it first. It didn't... It couldn't talk back. It just squeaked. I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. want anyone to think I didn't ask. Like, I did ask. <laughs> it's his moral standard for himself. Part of what makes this a really good introduction to Terry Pratchett is it's Discworld, but it doesn't need to be. You don't need the back knowledge of the Discworld world. You don't need to know anything about it. I read this before I read any other Terry Pratchett, and it was absolutely fine. So I love this book very much. I do want to flag up... So some of Terry Pratchett's books are a lot more problematic than this, especially the early ones. Like, And this is very good. Except the character of Dangerous Beans. Like... Dangerous Beans is their thought leader, you were saying. He's the one who reads the books. He's like a, a priest figure, isn't he? So. He's like a magical disabled person is what he is. Uh, He's blind. He is weak see, of I body. See, I hadn't clocked that. I hadn't clocked that at all. Yeah. yeah. That is so tropey. I'd glossed over that, but it, like now you've mentioned that, I'm thinking like... Is that a trope that's lazy, or is that him deliberately... I don't think so. I don't mm. think it's terrible, but I do think it is worth pointing out and being aware of. It's one of the more harmless tropes about disabled people, but it's still really reductive and lazy to me. It's just a way to make you feel sorry for him and like be even more like, ooh, inspirational disabled person who can't mm. see, but his mind is all the greater. Like that's That's really lazy and problematic I think yeah but I wonder if it's knowing as I say in that it's picking up a common story trope because that's one of the themes of this but book he doesn't right subvert it's a common it. story trope yeah normally when he's like subverting a trope like he points it out to you he does something to like break it and he hasn't so I yeah, think this that's is just true. a blind spot yeah 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 I mean I you yeah. know I still 100% recommend this book I've loved this book for a long time and this time round, reading it with like more of an awareness of disability politics. And now that I identify as a disabled person as well. I mean, I was disabled as a child too, but I didn't know it. Like, I, d- I do think it's a bit lazy. It goes along with the tropes like the magical Negro, the magical, you know, Native American. Like these, ide- like these tropes yeah. that spring up, I think, from privileged people trying to give a positive representation of a marginalised group and messing mm. it up by sort of, like, trying to make it inspirational and exceptional. Like, that it's exceptional that Dangerous Beans, mm. you know, is alive and clever. Like, what would have been better, I think, and more realistic, given their line of work, is that there would be many disabled rats. They run and dis- disarm traps, you know. Like, they probably get their tails chopped off and, I mean, all sorts of things. They probably incur lots of injuries. What would be more realistic, rather than your one token blind rat would be a society where there are quite a lot of them that are disabled. And you could still have dangerous beans then, but he's the only one. A better representation of disability in here would spread the disability out among the characters so that dangerous beans doesn't carry the onus of representation for all of disabled rats 
or all disabled people, and then it doesn't feel so tokenistic. Yeah. That aside, Dangerous Beans is probably my favourite character. Well, he's a writer as well. You know, we, I think we've had a few yeah. books, haven't we, where we have that point of going like, oh, that's a little writer insert about a writer. Like, <laughs> there's, a, I forget how it's phrased, but there's a bit where one of them's talking about Dangerous Beans. He's like, oh, he's an odd sort. Like, they are dangerous, them lot. Who, you know, he's, he spends his time thinking. <laughs> oh, and he, he discovers writing and it's like, you can, when you've got lots of thoughts in your head and then you can make a mark on the ground, the ground remembers for you. Yeah. <laughs> and doesn't get confused by, like, other smells and stuff. I think the best description of what Dangerous Beans does is given by Dark Tan. Dark Tan has a lot of problems with Dangerous Beans. He sort of doesn't like him too much. He's you know keeps a distance from him. He understands that he's important, but he doesn't really get it. And then there's a moment when he does... I am head of the trap disposal squad. I go ahead of the others, find the trap, disable it, make it safe for others to pass. Hmm. Dangerous Beans does that with ideas. He goes ahead of us toward the dangerous ideas. Yeah. He disables them, he wraps them up in words so that we can understand them, and then shows us the way past them. Yeah. That's beautiful yeah, yeah. writing. Like, yeah. yeah, but they don't feel, they never feel overbearing because they, they do just the blindside you because it's just joke, 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 moment of absolute profound beauty. And, it, the and then just joke, joke, joke. And, it, you know, yeah. it's not... You, you never you never have the feeling that he's getting into his own ideas too much. Do you know what I mean? I do love... Yeah, it's the, it's the other point I was going to make. We're talking about kind of the old way and the new way. There is that lovely idea of, like... Um, it's the older rats who are really struggling with this idea mm. of, like, thought and, like, being scared of shadows and scared of the dark. And then the younger rats like the new generation are more used to thinking and more used to thinking and there's like it's i think towards the end actually makes the comment of like all of this is weird now but then we're going to have mm. kids and they're going to have kids and it's going to be normal and people like things being normal yeah you know and it's just like yeah. <laughs> this is this is strange now because it's a period of change yeah and this is causing friction with a lot of people particularly like the older generation because mm. it's not what they're used to and that will be true for a while. And then yeah. those people will die and new people will be born and it'll carry on and it'll be normal. Yeah, it's... it's. I mean, Terry Pratchett is often incredibly progressive. Hmm. In, in his early books, which, to be honest, listener, just skip them. In his early books, he's very problematic. But because he's been writing so long and he wrote from being so young until he died, you really see the evolution of his thinking on certain things. Hmm. And he tends toward progress and he tends toward change uh, a lot of trans people really love his take on gender for example even though there is no explicitly trans character in Discworld there are a lot of things that could be read as transness in this book there is an interesting bit which I thought mapped on to like transness and also foreignness is when Keith tells Militia off for laughing at the rats names so Militia goes, Dangerous Beans? What kind of a name is that? And Keith explains, it's because they just, they learned to read before they learned what words meant. And so they just read these words around them and like the sounds. And she's like, yeah, but Dangerous Beans? It sounds like he makes you, and Keith is just like cuts through it and goes, it's his name, don't laugh at it. Yeah. And that is a good tactic for when people tell you a new name that they've got. 
a name that you didn't know them by before or people who have a name that you personally have difficulty pronouncing or you think sounds silly yeah. is important to be respectful of people's names yeah, yeah. I really love that bit like I sort of and because I, I, I think that's great because it's it's carried through in the writing as well in the yeah. you know the names are set up as a joke and it's funny and it's funny that they're called like what my favorite one is donut enter it's yeah. not do not enter it's donuts <laughs> like a donut and then enter but like while being set up as jokes they also just become their name yeah yeah it stops being funny yeah, Dangerous Beans is this like really sort of like intense character, and it's yeah. it does stop becoming funny. It's like you're not reading his name every time, going mm, it's called Dangerous Beans. No, exactly. Like, like you, you it, start going, ha ha, you got silly names, and then you just get used to it as their names. Yeah, and then it almost like it goes further, and it becomes like Dangerous Beans carries gravitas. It carries weight. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as well with that in the writing, whilst being kind of silly names that are apparently kind of chosen at random they suit the characters as well yeah like sardines yeah. the little dancing theater <laughs> rat with his hat on dark tan is like head of the trap disposal squad that totally works yeah like peaches as dangerous being sidekick like slightly cutesy kind of like they <laughs> they are good character names they are yeah they work well they fit once the you get characters. past the joke yeah, but whilst also being a joke, I think also yeah. still kind of totally fit the characters. Should we talk about who it's for? Yeah, I mean, as I say, I read it when I was 17 and loved it. I read it when I was 13 and loved it. Yeah, like you were saying. But I think you can go younger. Yeah, heard people reading it like at the age of seven, which I think would totally work. Yeah. Like some of it, it, some of it gets a bit graphic, like there are rat wars i mean it gets a bit visceral but a little bit but yeah not too much i i think i think seven or eight would probably be the low yeah. end who it's also good for is the children of Discworld fans who want to get their kid into Discworld. this is an excellent introduction to terry pratchett and to Discworld. yeah absolutely so that was episode 14 of even the trunchbull thanks for listening once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid. Or love now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. trunchbull.